So we're going to start out today continuing from where we left off last week. There were two paragraphs in the section on the chapter in on pathocracy in political ponderology that we didn't get to. I want to read those two paragraphs and then um, talk about two papers that I found online. I believe they were, it uh, looks like they might have been talks given at a conference um, somewhere, not quite sure, but... I'll read the paragraphs, and then you'll see how the papers are relevant. So this is Andrew Lobachevsky writing in Political Ponderology in Chapter 5. The main ideology, this is of pathocracy, succumbs to symptomatic deformation. In keeping with the characteristic style of this very disease, and with what has already been stated about the matter, this is in the stuff that we've talked about in the previous show and previous shows before that, the names and official contents are kept, but another completely different content is insinuated underneath, thus giving rise to the well-known double-talk phenomenon within which the same names have two meanings, one for initiates, one for everyone else. The latter is derived from the original ideology. The former has a specific pathocratic meaning something which is known not only to the pathocrats themselves, but also is learned by those people living under long-term subjection to their rule. Double talk is one of many symptoms. Others are the specific facility for producing new names which have suggestive effects and are actually virtually, uh, and which are accepted virtually uncritically, in particular outside the immediate scope of such a system's rule. We must... We must thus point out the paramoralistic con uh, sorry we must thus point out the paramoralistic character and paranoidal uh, qualities frequently contained within these names the action of paralogisms and paramoralisms in this deformed ideology becomes comprehensible to us based on the information presented in chapter 4 anything which threatens pathocratic rule becomes deeply immoral this also applies to the concept of forgiving the pathocrats themselves. It is extremely dangerous and thus immoral. And then just skipping ahead, there's just one other uh, short paragraph that's related to this. Pathocracy survives thanks to the feeling of being threatened by the society of normal people, as well as by other countries wherein various forms of the, of the system of normal man persist. For the rulers, staying on the top is therefore the classic problem of to be or not to be. In other words, it's an existential problem. It's a life-or-death situation to, uh, to stay at the top and to keep your position there. So the two papers that I found are... Um, let me read them. Totalitarian Dictionary of Czech by František Čermák. Sorry, completely butchering those names. And A Small Dictionary of Life Under Communist Totalitarian Rule, Czechoslovakia, 1948-1989, by Vera Šmidtova. Um, these are both Czech researchers, Czech writers, um, and first I'll describe their project. So this totalitarian dictionary of Czech um, was developed and put together by um, a few a few researchers over there, um, including Chermak and um, well several several others. Again, I won't pronounce their names because I have no idea how to do that. But the idea was this: they took um, like a representative sample of um, of writings from three periods in Czech history. Um, so these are Czech language writings. One was uh, from the, like, I think it was all of the, all of the front pages of one of the big newspapers of the time. Um, 
and then various like propaganda pamphlets and books and writings. And they took, they scanned all of these documents and, um, you know, corrected them and basically created a lexicon, like a, a dictionary or just a word list of all the words used in these publications for three periods of time. Like one was in like 1952, like right at the beginning, right after the institution of communist rule um, in Czechoslovakia. And then um, during like the, the Soviet occupation and was it like 1968? Um, and then in the first quarter of 1977, so this was time during a deep social recession and depression. So they took all of these, got all the words, like rank ordered them, so the most used words and uh, down to the least words, uh, least used words. Um, and then by analyzing that with the known frequency of Czech words in the 90s and the 2000s, we're able to get like a, a kind of a relative um, comparison. So like they could say, well, during the, during like the entire communist era, this word was used like way more in fact, it's not even used anymore. Or like in this one period of the of the from those three periods of communist rule, this word was used a lot comparatively to the other periods and to to modern um, modern Czech. Or these words in modern Czech are used and they were never used in um, in the communist period, and so on. And so by looking at the words in this way, they were able to identify a lot of like the the slogans and you know catchphrases and just the like the vocabulary of the communist system at the time because like in those quotes uh, from Lobachevsky the point he makes and that which he makes in other parts in the book too is that language is a big part of um, of what's going on in a pathocracy language is perverted it is um, um, reshaped in such a way to 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 be used in the service of this pathocratic government so this is of course you know George Orwell um, nailed this in 1984 and that's you know that's where we get the word double talk even though it wasn't double talk it's like new speak or double think those kind of just got combined together to, to for double talk or double speak but the, the concept is there the the like war is peace the 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 subversion of language and the institution the 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 introduction of new meanings and um and just the the kind of um not only the perversion of language, but the simplification of language. Like one of the points that these researchers make is that the language in the in like the Soviet propaganda, the or the or the communist socialist propaganda at the time was um, very simplistic, very repetitive, um, very like uh, it. It just has this quality to it. Like it's it's identifiable when you see it. It just it just stands out to you. Like you can see this in the in in the um, like the modern day, like discourse, like in uh, like leftist academia, for instance, you like you can listen to someone talking for thirty seconds and know if they're, um, you know, uh, um, like a progressive ideologist or not because they they talk the same way. They have the same like stereotypical phrases and word uses, and um, to the point where if they're using it, you can identify it immediately. It's the same thing with the with the communist propaganda back then. So. Um, just a bit on the background of this project, or some more on the background. So one of the things that, um, that Chermak writes in, in this short paper is that, the, well, like one of the motivations for doing this is that he found that like the young people today, um, well, they have, first of all, they have no notion of what it was like to live under communist rule. And even, um, even people who did seem to have forgotten very fast. Like the way, the, the way he puts it is that, um, um, 
whether too soon or too late, the decision to do this project was precipitated by, by realizing how fast people tend to forget the totalitarian time, the young generation not knowing it at all. Um, however, it seems that it is through the vocabulary of, the, of a period that one gets to know it best. So that's what motivated this project. So um, he gives one example of a word that was, well, just, um, it's not all totally like politically motivated. So there were some words that were just used and introduced um, that were just characteristic of of the time in the system. So for example, in, uh, in uh, Czech, it was the word, um, well, I won't, uh, I'll read the English, agrobiological. Like the word agrobiological was used all the time in, in the press and it's used nowhere like today. It's a pretty neutral word, right? It's not like no overtly political connotations, but it was just one of those things that the, the communist system just like appropriated. It's like, okay, here's this word. And then it just becomes this, this kind of catchphrase that's used in all these, all kinds of different contexts. Whereas like today, no one uses it. But then you get words with more of like an emotional um, subtext to them. Um, this is what Lobachevsky called in the, uh, or referred to in those quotes that I read as like the, su the suggestive character of these words. So they acquire this kind of like hidden, almost like hypnotic force behind them where you read the word and there's a, there's just all of this like emotional um, connotation, denotation to, to, to this word that isn't inherent in the word itself. It's like the word itself has probably been used, you know, in, in the history of that language, but without the added like emotional flavor and like the, the, that emotional subtext acquire, uh, that's like underlying it. So he, for example, he uses the word, um, he refers to the word, um, bezmezne, um, which means boundlessly, infinitely, immensely. And how that word, the like the use of that word has changed in time, uh, between the, the the present and back in the in the communist times. Back then, the word was used, you know, um, um, to basically refer. Well, back then, one of the stock phrases was immensely devoted to the USSR. So, the, if you'd see that word, chances are you were seeing it in reference to something relating to Soviet, uh, to to anything Soviet. It was like. Um, Im that's what it was. You were, you, you were, if you were immensely, then chances are you had to be immensely devoted to the USSR. That's like, that's what immensely meant. Whereas today it, the meaning has changed, you know, back to its original meaning. It just means like, um, um, like in modern Czech, it just means to infinitely believe in something. It just means you strongly believe in something. No, like no, none of that like hidden suggestive meaning, um, behind it. It's just, Oh, you immensely believe in that. Oh, I really believe in that. It's <laughs> like, yeah, whereas back then, if you immensely believed in anything, it had to be the USSR, right? right. Yeah. Um, another example that this guy gives is the word uh, for struggle or fight. And how, um, so all the different like phrases that it was used for, like the workers' struggle, the people's fight for peace, the fight of nations for peace, the proletariat struggle, the ideological struggle, the struggle of ideas, um, organized fight of the workers, Support fight of the nations, revolutionary fight, develop struggle against imperialism, develop the fight for peace, fight on those, the, the fight of those on strike, the class struggle, the direct, uh, to direct the fight of the workers' class, etc. So all of these, like, uh, obviously ideological 
um, phrases, all using the word fight. So he comments, on closer, expen uh, on closer inspection, it is evident that the, that the society lived then in a state of frenzy, feeling both endangered from the outside and feeling that it must fight for almost everything, including even the most common everyday things. So again, we have this language that's kind of this concept creep, this language that's creeping into other areas of life. So you have these specific situations where, you know, the, the word for fight would have been used previously. You bring in the communist government and all of a sudden the fight is applied, the concept of struggle and fighting is applied to all of these other, um, like, scenarios and situations where, you know, an entirely new and entirely, well, some fictitious and some just created out of nowhere scenarios. The, like, all these different fights that people have to be involved in Whereas, you know, previously it was just, okay, that, that was a fight, that was a struggle, and same today, right? But it acquired this additional, like, ideological meaning um, during this entire period. So um, he goes on, he's got some specific examples, like, um, <laughs> uh, just, just to give an example of the, like, the frequency of these, use, uh, of these words. Um, he gives just a sample of these words, and one of them is Adolf, so in reference to Adolf Hitler. So in 1952, um, the frequency of this word was uh, six parts per million. Compare that with the word agent, 263 parts per million. Um, so this was, of course, like, uh, you know, an agent of Tito, an, an imperialist agent, um, agent of the bourgeoisie. This was something, this was um, one of those words, again, a word previously used, had a, has a, an agreed-upon meaning, part of the common parlance, that acquires a new meaning, a new added flavor to it, um, now, like once it's appropriated by the regime. Same with the word American. American became not just uh, like a geographical sense. American was used as a pejorative to describe like anything, anything with, the, with the description, with the description American had to be bad. And it was equated with capitalism. So not only did it have the suggestive value of being bad and immoral, it was then equated with something that was related but not equivalent, um, capitalism. So American meant capitalism. If you're talking about an American something, you were talking about a capitalist something. So Americans there, thereby were then equated to capitalists. Every American was a capitalist. Every cap Well, was every capitalist an American? I don't know. I'll have to ask Aristotle. But... Um, um, so th and the the frequency of the word American compared to agent at 263 parts per million it was 2,527 2, parts per million. That's actually the most used word um, in this just this short sample. So in this other in, in this other paper, um, part of the same project um, by Vera Shmidtova, um, she gives some more like some more in depth examples of the way that words were used. Um, let me just skip ahead to the back before we get to the examples. I want to read some of her analysis um, of what she has to say about this. So uh, I'm just going to read her conclusion in this paper. As we, would, as we would expect under any political system, the language of totalitarianism in the former Czechoslovakia works within the semantic structure of Czech. However, it uses this structure for propaganda purposes. So words from the usual vocabulary are often abused to propaganda ends. So it's, you know, uh, American, uh, agent, struggle, war. The language is aggressive and monotonous. It frequently repeats certain associations, phrases, and slogans. Now, this is why these words just 
you see them everywhere. Um, they're like just pat stereotypical responses. That's why it, it becomes, it's like, that's why she uses the word monotonous. That's the way it is to read these kind of things. It's just like, it's just like mind torture to read the same garbage, you know, over and over the same pat phrases and, uh, and just repetitive words. Um, yeah, to certain words, it, this is the, this is related to the suggestive effect that Lobachevsky talks about. To certain words, it adds its own evaluating positive or negative gloss. For example, the word American always has a negative semantic connotation, even though it is referring to a geographical concept. The word Soviet is always positive. Totalitarianism often abuses to its ideological ends words with a positive semantic connotation. It creates new meanings for words by expanding their polysemy for example, Western equal cap equals capitalist. Mention that one. It is fond of certain semantic connections, such as building a better future, the struggle against enemies of the new order, democrati democratization of culture and education, which is a veiled reference to censorship in these fields. So just, I had to reread that the first time I looked at it because think about that. Okay, democratization of culture and education. What does that mean? Well, it sounds like democratization of culture and education, right? Well, no, it was actually a reference to censoring, like, you know, cultural departments and, 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 uh, you know, universities. It's like, okay. Um, going on just a bit more here with the, uh, with the aim of concealment, it often uses euphemisms, struggle for liberation example. Um, this language is not creative. It draws from automatized co components of language. It often uses set phrases. To this day, users often apply these phrases as ironic quotes referring to the period. So, uh, I, think, I think I mentioned this at the beginning of the show. It's it's so monotonous and like um, and just over the top and in your face that it becomes a joke. It becomes its own joke to the point where people are still using these phrases as jokes today because they were so ridiculous at the time. Um, the she goes on the various tools of propaganda. Techniques of persuasion, brainwashing, euphemisms separate those um, separate people into those who are with us and those who are against us, into the good and the bad. Words take on new meanings, which have a political sense. Linguistic stereotypes are used, which are repeated again and again. The propaganda works on the emotions. It is directed at ordinary people, which it perceives as a mass and a collective group. It tries to build its legitimacy on science. It speaks strongly against the church. These are just overarching features of the use of this language. Now notice that one. Um, it is directed at ordinary people, which it perceives as a mass and a collective group. So you've got a, a bit of identity politics in there. And that quote from um, Lobachevsky, let me read it again, the short one. Pythocracy, think, uh, pythocracy survives thanks to the feeling of being threatened by the society of normal people, as well as by other countries wherein various forms of the system of normal man persist. For the rulers, staying on top is therefore the classic problem of to be or not to be. So that's actually, that's the, according to Lobachevsky, that's the hidden motivation behind this, um, uh, behind this use of language. It is to create um, a division um, not between um, not between the the communists and the capitalists, but between the essentially the psychopathological minority of a society and the entire um, 
society internal to that country and external of non-psychopathic, relatively normal people. That's the direction of this language. That's why that's why it acquires. Well, it's just it doesn't just acquire. That's why it is injected with um, this moralizing. That's why words will acquire this additional um, um, this this additional emotional flavor to it. It's because, like the way Lobachevsky describes, again, anything that threatens the system is uh, like paramoralistically. Um, imputed to be bad and everything that is good to the system is seen as good so you, you get this rigid like dichotomous thinking that is um, like inherent in the system and what that actually means is that um, anything that is like good for humanity good for you like good for all these people the public as individuals and as you know and as a group is bad essentially if it means that it can threaten our you know our hold on power everything that is that that um, supports our hold on power is therefore good. And you get these, so these stark divisions between good and bad that are completely like opposite. This, they're topsy-turvy. Um, they're, they're, you know, 180 degrees from where they should be. That's why, you know, so, so it, would, it feels like you're, it feels like you're in um, some strange Kafka-esque world because everything's upside down. Um, the, the, the moral structure of, of reality has been inverted to the, and to the point where now it's like, well, am I crazy? Like I, I thought, you know, I thought things were a certain way and it turns out, you know, everyone's saying it's the total opposite. Well, that's the, that's actually what's going on. It's like, it, it is a, it is a essentially like a mind control operation going on. It's a psychological operation done on, done on you. And that with the purpose of um, trying to reform your mind to be more psychopathic, Essentially, that's what it comes down to. Um, at least, you know, that's the way uh, Lobachevsky describes it. So just a few more examples of the, the, the specific language that was used. So um, she's got some examples from the 50s. Um, new words that were... So these are either new words or um, um, words that just acquired a new meaning, a new frequency. So, for example, in the, in the early 50s, you know, trying to... Uh, Still establishing the communist system and and uh, the, well the pathocratic system, agitators and propagandists popped up a lot at um, the, the phrase at agitation centers. Agitation centers were um, essentially like re-education centers, um, like indoctrination centers, that kind of things. Um, phrases like agitation through loudspeakers. Um, uh, a phrase like a dog's death for a dog. Phrases like subverting the republic, treason. Of course, negative connotations with all those. Um, positive connotations, the Soviet Union, our model. In the 1960s, um, this is, uh, so it was during the Prague Spring, um, words like reformers, process of renewal, dogmatic, conservative, collaborators. In the 70s and 80s, so this is uh, the continuation of the period of normalization, as she puts it, well, the one that st stood out to me, tearing the skin from the workers' backs. So this is a phrase that you just see, you know, regularly. Um, you know, a cliche, like it becomes a cliche because it's used so often. Um, that blood, that blood-stained dog, Tito. A happy future, decaying capitalism, expelled or deleted from the party. Pretenders, usurpers, traitors, Disruptive elements. 
So these are all words that you'd see regularly in the, like on the front page of the news, um, essentially. And then, but the, the point that, one of the points that uh, both of them make is that there is this, there's this contrast between the official language, the, official, the, the language used in the propaganda and in the, the newspapers, and then the language that people actually spoke. And this was, um, I can't remember which one of them basically says, it's like, so this is the language that people would talk about or talk with when they were with like-minded people and they were sure like, you know, the secret police weren't listening in. So at that point, they just used their own language and they had, um, they had like their own, their own versions of certain words. So instead of saying, instead of using like the Czech word for party, they'd use another word that sounded more like the English word for party. For instance, so they they'd avoid the use of the like the the official communist terms for things and use their own words. Um, same with uh, same with the word communism. Even um, again, use a similar sounding word in Czech. Um, let's see if there's anything else. I think that might be about it. The yeah, oh, <laughs> just here are some of the. Some of the some examples of words or phrases typical um, in this dictionary. So I'll just read a couple of these. Uh, the word agent, for instance, this is the one I the first word we talked about. This was this occurred pro predominantly in the 1950s. Um, so agent was equivalent to diversionist or spy. So the high occurrence of this word is the result of a phobia seeking out people perceived as trying to subvert the new regime. People working for the enemy intelligence organizations trying to damage the communist order. And then examples of its use. An agent of the American intelligence service. Agents of American imperialism. Agents of Western imperialists. An agent of the bourgeoisie and an enemy of the Communist Party. CIA agents with the help of a treacherous gang of agents. <laughs> gang is another word that was overused uh, again in the 50s. Um, what was this gang of conspirators Slansky and his accomplices aiming at? Slansky and his criminal gang, a gang of Tito supporters, smashing the treacherous and marauding gang of Clementis and company. Um, not one grain should go to waste. This is another phrase, a popular slogan, primarily during the period of collectivization. The, slo the, the slogan also came to be parodied. <laughs> Just thought that was funny. Um, et cetera, et cetera. So... I'm just wait, where is that quote? Um, oh, yeah, so I don't think I read the last quote um, from the conclusion. So this co contrasts the language of the, the official language with the, the common language of the, of, you know, the people, essentially. So the language of the ruled, as opposed to the rulers, is spoken language, um, reacting to the pressure of propaganda. It is highly creative, whereas the official language had no creativity. It often parodies official language, and it often uses humor. So, for example, I quoted this one, I think, last week. Um, the example she gives is, to be made to leave the party of your own free will. <laughs> and, uh, and it also captures the atmosphere of the time, which was influenced by the way the communist regime functioned. So these, I, these must be like culturally significant because I don't really understand them, but the, the, the three examples are real genes. I, presume, I, I think that means like, you know, when you'd actually get Levi's like smuggled in and those were like real jeans, I think. Um, and then a Tujek token. I think those were like, um, those were tokens, tokens for like foreign currency, like on the black market. 
and uh, Lenin Wall. Not sure what that one is. But I just thought that was really cool. Apparently, like this was the first study of its kind, um, at least in Czech. And I don't know if it was a translation issue or, or what, but it sounded like in something that I read that it, it might be the first analysis of its kind like in any language for for the ex-Soviet countries. But Well, it's extremely valuable in terms of, you know, like a phonological analysis of ideologies and language and how they, you know, they, they change when a, you know, a pathocracy comes to power. You've got the implantation of a, you know, of a Soviet-style communist, you know, government and the changing of all of this language. And you get to see, you know, how people reacted towards it, the, how they, they abandoned it whenever they had the chance that they felt safe enough to. And you also get to taste the flavor, uh, really, yeah. you know, and, and for a split second, you're, you're kind of transported into that Kafkaesque world where, uh, you know, where, you know, one person, you know, you the, just this word has so much going on underneath it. It's just a threat. You know, there's this banal word carries this threatening overtone, you know, yeah. and then like the, uh, what was it to being made to leave the party of your own free will, that kind of like just stupid humor, you know, it's like authoritarian humor. Like, you know, it's just purely, you know, just self evidently <laughs> crazy, but you know, it's like, well, I'm the big, I'm the big boss. So we can get away with saying that because, you know, I make all of the rules. Yeah. yeah it, it's pretty crazy. Like I, I had the same thoughts when I was reading like Gulag Archipelago, um, just how crazy that the the use of the language is. Because I mean, one of the points that we made last week that Lobachevsky also makes is that you know you can have similar symptoms, similar features in different political systems, for instance. So you can have similar features in pathocracies as in any other like system of government. So for example, every society has euphemisms. Um, it's just it's part of the use of language. To try to cover over the you know less savory aspects of the unsavory aspects of of reality in life, people use euphemisms. But to take like it, it's like you take that that um, phenomenon, and then in a, in a pathocracy, it just gets like exponentially like well, it becomes a caricature of itself. The, euf the euphemism becomes a caricature of euphemism. It's just so over the top. It's totally crazy. And it's pro and it's, it's not just prevalent, it's everywhere. So you, like, it's inescapable. You just see the, you see the euphemism used universally. It's like all you see is the euphemism. You know, at least in, you know, well, in a, in a more normal society, you have euphemisms, but you also have, you know, people using the regular word for what you're trying to cover over. In like when when language is is kind of taken over in in this way, you lose the the regular meaning. You're just left with the euphemism. You have to discern the meaning behind the euphemism, and that's what Lobachevsky says is that um, that meaning is is the meaning reserved for like the initiates. Um, that's got it's got it's like the the psychopathic meaning behind the the reality. And we do have examples of those kinds of euphemisms too in the West, like you know extraordinary rendition, for instance. You know trying to cover over. Um, something or um one that was used by the nazis and the americans you know enhanced interrogate enhanced interrogation um the so you have words like that but they but the the when you have those two layers of meaning what lobachevsky points out is that the people naturally because people aren't aren't dumb um figure it out right they understand the meaning and not and it's not just euphemisms either it's like um it's like a euphemism but it's got 
there's got to be a word for it. Maybe there isn't. Like something related to a euphemism. It's similar to a euphemism, but it's it's that kind of caricature level crazy. It's like um, it's not just um, like what am I trying to say? Like a euphemism is kind of generally regarded by the people that use it as a euphemism. They know what they're doing when they're when they're using it. But there's something like extra malevolent about creating uh, a word to that seems to have a certain meaning, but but that has this dark meaning underneath it. Like, um, like one of the words that the, the Nazis used was like evacuation. So when they were, you know, during the war, when they were like killing villagers, you know, on the, on the war path, they'd, they'd say that the, you know, the villagers were evacuated. The village was evacuated. Um, when that's obviously not what it meant. It was, it wasn't even a euphemism. It's like, it was, it was just a lie. It's just lying with words. And the, what was the, the one example, one of the examples that, from these Czech papers, um, oh, what was the one? The yeah, the one about censorship, um, democratization of culture and education. It's like there's something just sick about you know using words in that way. Um, but um, getting back to the to the point about the like every culture has euphemisms, for instance, and you know every culture engages in these kinds of things. Every society engages in, in these kinds of things a little bit. Right, you'll find it everywhere, but it just becomes it. It's like uh, with with the the pathocratic version. It is like you said. It's like it's like stepping into this Orwellian Kafka esque kind of nightmare, where it's just it's just like it's it's everywhere. Everywhere you turn, that like you can't escape it. And then um, at that point, you have to um, like getting back to some of the things Lobachevsky describes. That's when you have to well, people in this situation. Are forced to then re-establish the ties with the with their you know their fellow people, um, because those those human ties between people, uh, well they get cut not just through the use of language like through the use of um, various other um, techniques and you know forms of control, but language is a big one. Those those ties get cut, so you feel isolated, um, and then you know I don't know how long it takes, but maybe it's different for individuals, maybe it's different for countries, but it takes, it takes a while to reestablish those ties with other people. And then at that point, that's when you, that's when you get the, the um, you know, this secondary language that, that comes up. And Lobachevsky talks about that too, just not in this section. The, the, the language of the, you know, the, the, the 94%, he'd say, or something like that. That, and it, it's their, it's their own, well, they, they parody the, the official, like jargon, and they make jokes about it. They understand the hidden meanings that gives them facility, you know, in the use of that language. So they can they can either um, well they can they themselves can then put on a mask, right? Um, a mask to avoid getting arrested for using the wrong words for for outing themselves as potential you know agents and saboteurs and uh, class enemies or you know insert you know epithet here. Um, so they they gain this extra kind of um, ability to speak in both languages, and that uh, that not only helps in interpersonally, but it helps in interacting with um, the system. Essentially, the man um, to like you know the 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 incompetent boss or manager or you know political boss or political manager, and um, it's that it's that that natural language that brings people together again and um, 
and creates the kind of solidarity that leads that can lead to the overthrow of the system. But yeah, I think that's all I wanted to say about that. Okay, yeah, if that was uh, all you wanted to talk about with the, those papers, which is really interesting, uh, I'd have to check those out. But I wanted to talk a little bit about this really great book that I read recently. It's uh, I don't know if anybody's heard of it. It's called Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook. It's by Mark Bray. And to kind of set the stage, uh, I was listening last week, I think, to the Joe Rogan show, uh, the powerful JRE, and he was interviewing Andy No. And I'm, I'm pretty sure most of our listeners probably know who Andy No is. He was recently attacked by a mob in Portland, Oregon, while he was covering uh, a number of protests. Um, one of them was an Antifa protest, and another one was a, a Proud Boys protest, and yet another one was some sort of a uh, men's rights kind of protest. So Portland is just just a complete hotbed of craziness. And he went down there to, to cover it, and he'd been doxxed and attacked before by Antifa because he is somewhat, you know, center-right um, commentator and author and journalist, and I think even co-founder of the, the, mag or the online site uh, Quillette. But so he'd been doxxed and targeted, and so, but he went down there to, to cover it anyways, even though he'd been you know, assaulted before. But when he went down there, he was ganged up on by, he thinks, like six to 12 people and attacked, beaten with his you know, camera, his camera stolen, I believe. No police presence helped him. He wasn't helped at any point in a, a series of attacks. He ended up with brain lesions, I believe, bleeding on the, uh, bleeding on the brain. And so he went on the show to kind of, you know, to discuss the, the assault, the fact that the Portland mayor did nothing, um, has allegedly, or has seemed to have ordered the police to stand down when Antifa groups assemble and, uh, and to talk about the dark side of the, you know, the quote unquote anti-fascist, uh, movement. Because I, it was last week on last week's show, we were talking about how, how important it is not to accept the name furnished by an ideology of a social movement that has succumbed to de degenerative processes. That's something that uh, Andrew Lobachevsky wrote in Political Ponerology, because the ideology itself is something far different from a movement that starts to embrace radical and pathological means of attaining its you know, stated ends. And so... Throughout the course of their conversation, Joe Rogan and Andy Noah are kind of going back and forth because Rogan's like, well, you know, I don't like fascists, you know, so I can kind of get on board with what, you know, with what they're saying. And then Andy Noah would say, you know, well, do you support free speech? Do you support violence? Do you support the state? Because all of, you know, they, they want to destroy, dismantle the state. They want, you know, they want to suppress free speech and all this. And then he recommended at the end reading uh, Mark Bray's book, Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook. So I decided I would pick it up and I would read what uh, this Bray gentleman, who he is, uh, he's a lecturer at a college at this point, at, Dar at Dartmouth College. But according to his bio, he was an 
organizer for Occupy Wall Street, one of the original organizers. And I was reading some of his articles, and one of them was like the five lessons we need to learn about liberal libertarians in, in our radical movements. And he writes that the liberal tendencies of some occupiers severely undermined the movement's strength. Identifying them will make it easier to resist them next time. So he was very, he, he's not a big fan of quote unquote liberals. What he thinks of as individuals who are more intent on self-individualization and self-actualization uh, than they are on co completely dismantling the nation state. So I think that's why he identified Antifa, you know, this anti-fascist kind of ideology for, you know, because he's he, the author of this book, and I don't think there is actually another anti-fascist handbook out there. And I doubt that any real, ant, like, strict Antifa person is going to think that he's their spokesperson because they're a very loosely knit uh, organization of, you know, of anarchists and everything. But he really succinctly argues for the Antifa point of view. He argues uh, for for why they behave, why, why they act in a certain way regarding violence, regarding who's fa who is a fascist and who's not, regarding racism. And he, he points out their identity in this book. So I thought it would be nice to, to kind of uh, pull out some of the main themes and kind of see how he twists language or how the language gets twisted when you know you throw in so many truths and then just twist the language here and there and pretty soon you end up with a bunch of people beating up a gay journalist in the street in the name of diversity um but anyway so this is what he writes on in terms of violence which i think everyone could probably get behind he said, wouldn't Americans consider it just as heroic to fight Nazis before the outbreak of war while Hitler's regime was building camps and ghettos or before Hitler even took power in 1933? How would Americans respond to a cinematic depiction of communist and social democratic organizations such as the Red Front Fighters League, the Iron Front for Resistance Against Fascism and another German anti-fascist group when they fought the Nazi something in the 1920s and 30s? I like to imagine most Americans would sympathize with these militant formations because they know that the story ultimately ends in the gas chambers. And so, you know, what about when fascists do not pose an immediate physical threat? Is it better to ignore small, harmless fascist groups? By now, it should be clear that small fascist groups do not always remain that way. In Greece, Golden Dawn burst out of nowhere to become a major force poised to lead a government before criminal charges decimated party leadership in 2013. And he goes on to devote a big chunk of the book to discussing actual fights against actual fascists and actual Antifa groups in you know Eastern Europe who are going around and cleaning up neo-nazi spray paint and everything and that's he interviewed you know these groups for his his show and or for or for this book which was released in 2017 just right after this that whole charlottesville thing really went up in flames and and so you get this idea uh that that's what all that antifa is is that they are all just out there fighting guys and they're you know all these skinheads who are out to beat everybody up and to fight everybody and and then you know he says well what what if you don't know that they're fascist yet well then you know but they might still be and so what you know what if we by beating up these people who could be fascist we prevent the next hitler 
So you're like, okay, that's, uh, that, <laughs> that is, that's his, um, that, you know, that's how he dedicates a large part of the book is to really building up this theme of like, you're actually out there fighting Nazis. And so, you know, you're like, well, shoot, I was all about fighting Nazis before fighting Nazis was cool. You know, that's all Americans, Amer that's just in the American blood in the American mythos is fighting Nazis. So you, you start with that and then you, um, you go on and he doesn't, he never really provides a good definition of what fascists are. But he does provide a good definition of whiteness. So this is what he says about whiteness. Uh, whiteness is a moral choice, for there are no white people, James Baldwin explained. And we, who were not black before we got here either, were defined as black by the slave trade. And despite the popular perception that race is natural or timeless, the biological notion of race is a modern European in invention. When race was invented, however, it was invented as the child of racism, not the father, as Ta-Nehisi Coates points out. And the process of naming the people has never been a matter of genealogy and physiognomy as so much as one of hierarchy. So he goes on to say that, if I can just fight, oh yeah, yeah, so the, basically, whiteness is indefensible is what he writes. So that's, you know, fascism. He, he, he does end up giving a, a definition of fascism, but that's really beside the point because he spends a large part of the book arguing that now it's not important just to, to fight fascism because that was in the past. We have to redefine the enemy. And now the enemy is the far right. And on the far right is the white people and whiteness. Whiteness in and of itself is an indefensible construct that racism and fascism, and all of these things come out of. So then, of course, your violence is justified in these terms because of, you know, white privilege and white guilt. The entire idea that you would even think of yourself as white, if you were, is only to legitimate your own privilege and your own power over other people. Um, so... Here, but here's a here's a definition of fascism that I you know I got from Jonah Goldberg's liberal fascism, the secret history of the American left from Mussolini to the politics of change. Fascism is a religion of the state. It assumes the organic unity of the body politic and longs for a national leader attuned to the will of the people. It is totalitarian in that it views everything as political and holds that any action by the state is justified to achieve the common good. It takes responsibility for all aspects of life, including our health and well-being, and seeks to impose uniformity of thought and action, whether by force or through regulation and social pressure. Everything, including the economy and religion, must be aligned with its objectives. Any rival identity is part of the problem and therefore defined as the enemy. And that's, I mean, that's right there. I've, I've, Pretty, it's a pretty good definition of fascism. I mean, if you want to actually define fascism, and that's another thing that in this book, he never talks about the fact that it's not easy to define fascism. It's, a, it's very specific historically. You know, it's, you have Nazis, and then you have the fascists, and Mussolini's fascists. It's, you, don't, there, you don't get a sense that it's difficult at all to, to find a fascist. The idea is that you could, you'll see it and you'll just know what it, that it's a fascist and then you just go punch it in the face and then, you know, and that's, that's all fine and good. Um, and, you know, there's, so that is, 
the the what would you say the Rosetta Stone really through how they view um, everything through how they view all of their activities is basically whatever just whatever gets them to that end of defeating fascism, which is very loosely defined, and it incorporates ideas like race, hierarchy, and the state, you know, anything any organized, anything that is organized, basically order itself is, is seems to, in, in a large part, uh, seems to be fascist to them. Um, so anything is justified in that sense. Like you can, you know, you can beat up people in streets. You can block the streets. You can do black block mobs. You know, as, as he points out, he says, um, an occasional black block in a sea of otherwise nonviolent action does not exclude anti-fascism or the Trump resistance movement more broadly from falling within a category of success. After all, a few black blocks were formed during the Egyptian movement, and that largely nonviolent revolution succeeded. And he goes on to say, to those who argue that our violence would make us no better than Nazis, we must point out that our critique is not against violence, incivility, discrimination, or disrupting speeches in the abstract, but against those who do so in the service of white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, class oppression, and genocide. The point here is not tactics, it is politics. And then, of course, you know, his screed on Trump is that while one should always be wary about painting large groups of people with a broad brush, it is clear that ardent Trump supporters voted for their candidate either because of or despite of his mis misogyny, racism, ableism, Islamophobia, and many more hateful traits. And these fascists it are, it's, um, fascism is marked by obsessive preoccupation with community decline, humiliation, victimhood, and compensatory cults of unity, energy, and purity, in which a mass-based party of committed nationalist militants, working in uneasy but effective collaboration with traditional elites, abandons democratic liberties and pursues with redemptive violence and without ethical or legal restraints goals of internal cleansing and external expansion. I wonder if he ha even had a straight face on well, as he was writing this. You change one word, nationalist <laughs> militants. You change that to an Antifa militants, and it it is... 100% right on the nose. And, and, and so I, I'm reading through this and I couldn't, I just couldn't get through the, the anti-fascist chapters because it just, it just seems so, uh, it just seems so disrespectful to the dead, in my opinion. It seems so disrespectful to the ancestors who did actually, you know, fight and and to people who even today are actually out there and they are there is a real threat of actual skinheads on the streets like you know in ukraine you think about actual skinheads actual violent racist skinheads who want to kill everyone who think the jews are the worst problem that you know that they they just have to have their ethnic nation state and you you see that and you think and then you compare that to somebody who wears a, a maga hat and you think they're the same thing you know, that's what we were talking about last week. We were talking about just a delusional system. You're not, you're, you're, there's something wrong going on. You're, you're not seeing things straight. And then you, now you're using this as a justification for, you know, for violence against the people that you're stating that you want to, that you want to help. And so, I mean, you just reading through the book, the best parts are where he's really getting down into the identity of Antifa, why their, their, uh, their tactics are justified, why they are allowed to, why they should be um, praised for going out and shutting down conservative speakers. It's like, it's like you're, 
you're defining anybody who, as we've said, is left of Marx as a conservative. And in your mind, every conservative is on the far right. What you've done, it's like in a culture, it's like a marriage, right? Like a man and a woman, you know, they, they're married. Each one of them is crazy, but they kind of complement one another, right? That's like the same thing in society. You, you, you have the left and you have the right. Both are crazy, but they need one another to, you know, to at least stay sane. When you, when you create that division where it's like literally everyone that, is, that doesn't share your political opinion is Hitler, You've, you, you're, there's nowhere to go but down for this, for society as a whole. You know, you, we need, you really do need a, a liberal perspective on things. You need some openness to ex, new experiences, you know, openness to other cultures, a willingness to, you know, bring in more, you know, other ideas, new ideas. And then you, but you still need tradition and you still need, you know, conservatives who are willing to say, well, now hold on. You know, let's maybe let's not just go put on our black hoods and go beat up uh, old men in the streets. But the biggest uh, the biggest thing I think from, you know, reading that book is that there is there is a commitment, I think, to making Antifa an identity. And it does and it it does seem to be something that would be attractive to people who don't have a wider awareness of, of politics, you know, people who've been sheltered and, um, you know, who've lived in like a very left leaning city or whatever for their whole life. And all they hear is left leaning, uh, ideological, you know, talking points. And so then eventually, you know, anybody who disagrees with that, you're like, Oh my God, what a monster, you know, this, you know, somebody who doesn't some, you know, somebody who doesn't believe in affirmative action, you know, it's like, oh my God, what? That's Hitler himself. He must be racist. You're like, no, people can have different opinions and not and not be racist. Well, no, not according to Antifa. If you're white, you're racist because whiteness is racism. Where do you, you know, what? How do you, how do you, uh, how do you talk with well, somebody like who thinks that? You know that that just made me think. So you're talking about all these, yeah, you know, the the hypothetical individual who grows up in like you know a left leaning. Um, region or city or community and doesn't really have access to a lot of outside experience, you know, experience of, of people and culture outside of that specific, you know, uh, monoculture that they're, that they were raised in that it seems very kind of humorous and ironic to me that a lot of those individuals, those progressive individuals that, that might, you know, grow up to be, um, you know, Antifa members probably haven't traveled because um, a lot of Americans, like uh, I think Americans have a you know very low percentage of, of people who actually travel to foreign countries. You know they travel a lot. People you know might travel a lot within the United States. Um, so maybe you vacation in a different state or you've moved to a different state or whatever. But for people who who have actually been to completely foreign cultures, chances are a lot of these kids have never been uh, like immersed in a foreign culture. I think if they were to do that, they would be kind of very rudely disabused of a lot of their, you know, preconceptions about the way the world works and about what about what's about what their own society is like, um, not because uh, a lot of the issues. It, well, it's it's really like you know, it's a kind of a cliche, but it's like first world problems kind of things. It's like you're looking around the world and finding all of these like uh, horrible, um, you know, fascist things going on, when really, it's like 
small potatoes compared to a lot of the stuff that's going on in the world, um, not within the borders of, of your own country. And there are a lot of things going on within the borders of your own country that that you don't even bring attention to. Because there's a lot of bad stuff that goes on that doesn't get attention. Um, and uh, but but going back to like the thing about other cultures, like if they were to go to another culture and just see like um, like what we would what we would call in the West like racism, that's just like everyday life. It's like um, you go to Japan and it's like the like J- Japan is very like mono racial, and uh, the, you can you can go to um, you can see signs on stores saying, you know, no non-Japanese, no Chinese, you know, no white people, Japanese only. You go to China, same thing, no, like no Japanese or, and, and uh, like, uh, like there's, there's particular, there's particular aspects. Like if, if, you know, racism is a circle with a whole bunch of different characteristics, like you can find those characteristics like prevalent all over the place in different races. And um, like, a lot. Some of it's overblown. Um, a lot of it isn't. You know, a lot of uh, if if people uh, if progressives like experienced a lot of the like the racism that it, that actually exists in other parts of the world, they might be shocked, um, or they might not be because racism isn't actually racism according to um, you know according to this like philosophy. Um, you might think that racism is you know um, thinking that everyone of a particular Skin color, for instance, has the same traits and might be negative traits, but that's not actually, you know, it's, it's not a, um, racism isn't like generalizing about someone or some group, um, at least not according to like the, the postmodern um, leftist perspective that they're taught in universities. Racism is power and privilege, and that's it. It has nothing to do with actual, like what we'd think of as race. So, so like Asian people can't be racist, um, you know, uh, African people can't be racist. It's just it's it, it's not part of the it's not part of the ideology. So that's that's another weird thing. Well, well yeah. Well, because as as he writes, you know, Europeans invented races. This is something that he just squeaks in there, like it's just a generally accepted fact that nobody in the history of humanity ever noticed a difference between races. Between you know Asian, black, white, nobody noticed the difference, and no, they didn't have any words for it. It was it was it wasn't until you know Francis Galton or somebody decided to come up with a word to justify whiteness that race even existed. And so it's not it doesn't exist. I mean he he argues that point in the book. And so you know like you were talking about the crazy sense, like did I just enter a crazy world? So I was sitting there, I was like, well, that is the most bonkers idea. No wonder a lot of these guys don't go on you know right wing uh, radios to you know have discussions and debates because how how could you say that and that doesn't get get you know lambasted? I mean, like the Greeks had so many different words for. Uh, for different tribes, cultures, you know, cities, and like so many different nuanced ways of viewing ethnicity and race that it was just, you know, to say that it didn't exist until modern Europeans invented it for the purpose of, you know, conquering people is, uh, it's just a, such a big, ridiculous lie that to to believe it, I mean, you you would just have to think that wow, they're the most evil people who ever existed. <laughs> you know, they just came into this garden of eden and created this concept just to c- control everybody yeah i mean it doesn't well, get much yeah. worse than that like you can almost i can almost see the point that 
either he was trying to make or that might have inspired that because technically he's right in, in that scientific racism you know as a concept didn't exist because it was a it was a product of its time it's scientific ra- racism like mm-hmm. you know social darwinism it's like but but that that in itself is a very specific thing and it's not like everyone that they call a racist today is a scientific racist it's like or a eugenicist it's like that way of thinking you know, there are still some people around the world that think like that, mm-hmm. but it's very rare. It's like in the late 1800s, it was very widespread to think in eugenic, in eugenical, eugenicist terms. It's like that's just that was kind of the 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 natural way of thinking about things. It's like you wanted to you wanted good breeding, um, whether whether um, um, well, and it wasn't even it wasn't even primarily necessarily along racial lines. It was more along class lines. Good breeding among the upper class. If the upper class happened to be white, it might be primarily white, um, like, like white good breeding. But it didn't have to be. Um, so in that sense, he's kind of right that racism as like a, an, a specific ideology didn't exist. But that well, ideology no, he's talking about exist the now. biological notion right. of race. Like the but the whole entire the fact like it's not doesn't exist. There's no such thing. We're all the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but being white is bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, yeah, it's kind of kind of kind of bonkers, kind of crazy. Um, a little, yeah, a little bit. One maybe to end today's show. Uh, did you have George Orwell's definition of fascism? Um, I don't have it. I have it paraphrased. You can paraphrase it. Orwell's uh, definition of fascism is anything not desirable. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I like that. Anything he, I don't like. He. I think that was in a. Might have been like an article or a column that he wrote. I think it's like to find it in print. It might just be in one of those collected works of George Orwell. I, uh, oh, that, it might be in like that slim volume, like the political use of language or something. There's some thing that he wrote, but uh, I found it you know, a year or two ago and I read it and he, he was pointing that out. He was, he was, you know, wondering, well, what exactly is fascism? And you look around and that's pretty much the conclusion he came to that the, the way the word was used was pretty much anything I don't like is fascist. That's what fascism is. It just became, um, um, similar to, you know, what, the way we started this show with the, the, you know, the use of language in Soviet societies, it was, um, you know, that word, it just acquires a, a certain meaning. It's like um, like socialism in the States. Like socialism is a bad word. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't know, like, whether you know what you're talking about or you don't, it's a, it's a bad word, just like fascism is. It's like fascism is bad. You know, communism is bad. Well, those things very well might be bad for particular reasons, but that doesn't enter into the, like, the thought process, the equation. It's just like, it's just like, uh, like a Pavlovian response, it's like, ooh, bad thing. So if I see a bad thing, then I can call that bad thing a fascist, um, regardless of whether it's an actual fascist or not. And that's like that's the main problem. It's that, like, uh, and he even, if I remember correctly from one of those first quotes, he even justifies it. It's that, oh, well, can you, like, what if that person that you're beating up isn't actually a fascist? It's like, oh, well, they could be a fascist. And, you know, who would you be if, you know, if that person might be a fascist and might be the future Hitler and I'm beating him up, then won't you look bad for criticizing me for beating up this guy? It's like, Jesus, like, like <laughs> set the bar any lower. Yeah. Please. It's like, so just let's think this through. All right. It's like um, I could just go around randomly hitting people, randomly beating people. 
And, uh, and who are you to criticize me? Because one of those people might be the future Hitler. Mm -hmm. So how dare you? Say, like, how dare you criticize me for beating up random people? Well, here, I just want to finish one more quote about how pro-free speech he thinks that Antifa is. He says, I will observe that the anti-authoritarian position held by the majority of Antifa is actually far more pro-free speech than that put forward by others, uh, by liberals. The false assumption that the United States maximizes free speech rests on the unstated fact that this right only applies to non-incarcerated citizens. <laughs> In contrast, anti-authoritarians seek to abolish prisons, states, and the very notion of citizenship, thereby, thereby eliminating this black hole of rightlessness. I mean, wow. Mm -hmm. So, just such a great concept. Yeah. Yep. That's how pro-free speech, they, I mean, it doesn't matter if they come and they're beating you up and they won't let you speak. They still want to let all of the criminals out <laughs> well, just <laughs> to run oh, the streets. God. Yeah. Open the borders up, let the MS-13 in, so everybody gets their free speech. Well, see, that's what I'm saying. Is like The problem is, it seems like order in and of itself is fascism. Mm -hmm. Any sort of constraint, restraint on behavior in any form is is evil. I don't like it, so yeah. I'm going to punch you. And I, I just think, like, hearing something like that, that's what leads me to think that, uh, you know, Lobachevsky, right? And um, in a group like that, like you, you can't. I don't think you can say something like that without having a little bit, at least a little bit of something wrong going. You know, so, something going wrong. At least a little bit in your head. It's like there needs to be a little bit of mental illness there to be able to say such a thing. And not only mental illness, like a little bit of malevolence. Like, um, on some level, he's got to know what that means. And anyone, oh, he's clearly like, a very intelligent person. Because, um, and what does that mean? Like, so just like you can look at, uh, you know, a pathocratic euphemism and find the meaning behind it, mm -hmm. you know, the intent, the, the hidden intended meaning. It's like, well, what is, what is the actual result and goal of that kind of a, like, let's say a policy position? It is, okay, let, let's take the absolute worst people that are incarcerated, like a lot of them for a good reason, probably most of them for a very good reason, and let's let them loose. The only thing, the only reason you you would want to do that is to create havoc, to to unleash psychopathy on the world in its most based violent form. Yeah. Because um, you're not saying let's release all the people you know, in, in, like arrested and imprisoned for you know nonviolent drug uh, drug crimes or anything like that. No, you're saying let's get rid of the entire like the entire prison system and just let them all go free. Well, I, no, I think for for anyone that's with, that's saying like saying something like that or proposing something like that, I think that all of those people should be given the opportunity. They should be of their own free will to enter like a maximum security prison and be put in the wing with the serial killers and the pedophiles and the child rapists and child killers and um, just see what happens. All right? <laughs> that's my policy position. Uh, okay, so I think that's uh, for today. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a pretty good place to leave it. All right, yeah. Um, send them all to prison uh, of their own free will. Hit like and subscribe of your own free will. <laughs>